it's live. Oh, thank goodness you gave me warning this time. How are you doing, mate? I'm well. It's so funny to have not spoken to you for like four weeks. Well, that's not strictly true, but we haven't podcasted for a long time. <laughs> I, I wanted to make it sound like that was the case. We've actually been talking a lot. Business has been busier, but not, not by no means back to normal. If you're, doing, if you're doing a decently researched podcast, I don't know how people do one a week. So. You'd have to have a team, I think, or make it a much more full-time thing in the way that we're doing it. But hopefully this is... Time to read, man. Time to read, Take yeah. Time to read and structure. And... Yeah, hopefully this is going to reflect the, uh, <laughs> the effort that we've put in and the serious amount of thought and discussion that has gone into the very considered opinions you're about to hear. So, Ant, tell us, what's the question today? Super pertinent. When is lockdown justified? Cool. And just quickly, by way of introduction, I'm Jacob. And I'm Ant. We're the co-hosts of The Morality of Everyday Things, which is a little podcast we started during lockdown. We found we often spent long, interesting conversations discussing the ethics of perfectly normal things. And Mm -hmm. this last year has thrown up actually some extremely unusual things that pose really interesting ethical challenges. And today's question, when is lockdown justified, is certainly a really good example of that. Yes. And for a little more context, Jake and I studied together, studied at Oxford, uh, a mix of politics, philosophy, economics, and business management. We also co-founded a business together, raised a bunch of money, worked together for four or five years. That's enough about us. Straight into it. Jake, let's let's get why are we talking about this? So if you're listening to this shortly after we release it, you'll obviously be well aware that at the moment we're living through an ongoing pandemic. The coronavirus disease, which everyone calls COVID-19, it's an infectious disease caused by severe acute respiratory syndrome, also known as SARS coronavirus 2. Uh, If you're listening to this in the future, then this will give you some context. We are literally, it's, it's August 2020. So the pandemic kicked off. It was first identified back in December 2019 in Wuhan, China. The pandemic continues to rage as we record this. There's been more than 18 million cases as of today that have been reported across 188 countries and territories, resulted in more than 690,000 deaths. However, more than 11 million people have recovered. So that's, that's good news. What we do know is the virus is primarily spread between people take during close contact, most often via small droplets produced by coughing, sneezing, and talking. So coughing has become a major no-no, hasn't it, Oh, no. I, I used to. This is my favorite COVID joke. I used to cough to hide my farts. Now I fart to hide my coughs. <laughs> that never gets old. <laughs> and cough, It's true. I mean, coughing has basically become a form of GBH. You can be arrested for it. If you oh, mate. Someone. The other day I was at a restaurant with my dad and, and he's not ill or anything. But, you know, you know, when you just have something stuck in your throat, it's not even like a cough. You're just like, <clears throat> you know, clear your throat a bit. Yeah, he did. He did this. It was just, you know, awkward in his throat. And you should have seen the look on the waiter's face. It was like it was it was like he just dropped his pants in the middle of the room. Shocked. <laughs> because of the pandemic, governments around the world began declaring lockdowns to limit the spread of the disease. So what is a lockdown? I mean, there's a whole suite of lockdown approaches that we've seen across different countries around the world, varying from just enforcing the closure of businesses to fully restricting the movement of people. Mm. I suppose technically the response that many countries have taken is, is a quarantine, which is a restriction on the movement of people and goods intended to prevent the spread of diseases. It differs technically from isolation, which is where you identify people infected with the disease and, and you isolate them, uh, which is what happened in the case of like the Ebola outbreaks that we saw earlier in the decade. But a quarantine mm. is more sort of blanket. It happens en masse. 
The yeah. other significant thing to note is that because of the lockdown and because of the impact on closing businesses, the world has seen huge economic crashes. You had some figures from the US, right, mate? Yes. So the US, uh, in terms of GDP, was roughly a third down in Q2. That's massive. Uh, that is absolutely yeah. mental. And, and consider, consider as well, government spending is up and government spending was like a third of GDP anyway. Yeah. Um, so so they spent the more and still made less. Yeah, that's like half of the free market basically collapsed. Uh, EU, EU average was only 12%, but in Spain, it was nearly 20 mm. um, And then in terms of jobs in the US, during the 08 kind of fallout, under 10 million jobs were lost. So far, uh, due to COVID, 30 million jobs have been lost. Wow. Uh, and, you know, there's some argument that maybe these are super low quality and maybe they're not truly lost. You know, maybe as soon as, jo- uh, as um, businesses reopen, come back. But yeah, just to clarify for the, for the point of this question, when is lockdown justified? We're taking lockdown to refer to the specific policy of enforced closure of businesses and restricted movement. So government's basically saying you cannot leave your home. You cannot you know, do X, Y, Z. Uh, you cannot go to the office. So that kind of enforced closure, enforced restriction. That's why it's morally interesting. And that's also from a, you know, unusually for us, we'll kind of consider the policy a little bit from a policy mm. perspective. It's kind of been treated globally as like, oh, this is the only viable policy um, option. And not every country has enacted it. You can enact anti-COVID policies without locking down. We'll, we'll kind of come to that in the further analysis. Totally. So that- one thing we always like to do on this podcast is break down a question because we've given you a lot of the real world context here. Obviously it's an emotive topic. It comes with some amount of preconceived assumptions and biases. And what we want to do is strip that away for a second and answer, what does this question really mean? What is the sort of ethical question that underlies it? This is such a good one because I think it's such a good example of like people kind of get whipped up into this concern and, and, and fear and they, they start to think as if public health is kind of a special case, right? Mm. And we'll kind of address how we may have seen this in other forms before, actually, the question this is really getting at. So in asking if lockdown is justified, I'm, I'm taking it that the assumption is we're basically saying that there's some number of people who don't want to do this or don't agree with the idea of locking down, or at least with the, the government enforcing or coercing us into doing this. I, I mean, if this isn't the case, then it's kind of a, a trivial point, right? So there's there is at least some number of people who don't agree, either don't agree with the policy or don't agree with the government enforcing the policy. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say it's lockdown is a controversial policy. It's, it's a major restriction of people's freedom that none of us have seen in our lifetimes. Uh, it comes yep. with a whole suite of consequences and it's traded off against the fact that we're, we're doing this for yep. something really important, but it's, exactly. it's controversial for so you, sure. Yeah, so you touched on it there. The basic question is, when is it okay for the public good to supersede our private rights? And like I said, we may kind of feel like, oh, but, you know, public health is, is different or important. But actually, this as a moral or political question is not overly un- unfamiliar. We live in a society that's full of private restrictions for public good. And, and on the converse, certain private rights that we think should not or beyond a certain extent shouldn't be um, restricted, even if it's for public good. Examples of, of things that we do that may actually have some sort of public harm at some level, driving, right? Driving gives us all a lot of personal freedom. Anyone who's lived in the country, as in the countryside, and, you know, is waiting to get their driving license will know that feeling. But <laughs> driving does, dri- driving causes a significant number of deaths every year. 
So we have to balance how do we regulate driving such that there's an acceptable number of deaths for the amount of benefit that it gives individuals. Which is why um, we have traffic laws, right? And it's how we set speed limits. It's why we set certain ages, why we set certain restrictions on who can have licenses, etc. cetera. Uh, and drink driving, for example. Yes. So for example, we say drink driving is an example of an activity that is unnecessarily reckless and pretty much in no circumstances worth the personal freedom it gives you to be able to drive when you're drunk. Flight restrictions, another one. Anyone who's old may remember that taking a flight in the 80s, supposedly, I wasn't there, um, <laughs> was, like, was like getting on a bus. Uh, whereas now, in a post-9-11 world, we are all very familiar with airport security and you, you have to basically be there an hour or two before and it's all quite elaborate. But that's a personal freedom that we have to give up for a public good. And we agree with that. But what happens when, when we reach points where there are certain rights or, or private restrictions that we're not willing to give up? So, for example, if you think about democratic societies versus authoritarian societies, think about the value that we put on freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of movement. I mean, even in democratic societies like the US, you'll remember that there was a big scandal with Apple on this. Mm-hmm. National security advisors will often say that they need back doors into, into people's iPhones. But public outcry may be that, you know, we need our are privacy respected. This is too open to abuse. These are all arguments that are actually pretty similar to the public health ones in that, one, we have to balance this public good with private good. And two, we have to consider the extent to which we don't want to allow policy that's made in this specific circumstance to then kind of have an an encroaching effect thereafter. So authoritarian creeping power is a major concern that several people have voiced, i.e. we don't want to give the government access um, in the in the name of stopping COVID that we then can't revert later on. Mm. And all of that does point back to the fact that trading private rights for public goods is actually, it's not, a, so, I mean, people love to use the word unprecedented when it comes to COVID. And it's true, it's, it's, it's unprecedented in a lot of ways, but ethically, it's not. Ethically, you know, we make these trade-offs all the time. Uh, this is just a new context for it. Okay, so how do we decide whether it's justified? From a moral perspective, I think we can say that an action is justified if under a certain moral framework to which we ascribe the choice of action is coherent with the right course of action as defined by that framework. So firstly, we need to think about what sort of moral frameworks we should consider here. Now, I think it's kind of reached the point where rather than do a kind of introduction to the material every single time, we simply recommend that you listen to previous episodes if you aren't overly familiar with what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think in terms of moral frameworks, we've, we've talked about a few before, the biggest chasm that exists in moral philosophy is probably between the frameworks that define what's right on the basis of means to ends or those that define what's right on the basis of ends in themselves. So what I mean by that is there's a, a group of frameworks that will say that all of our decisions are basically just stepping stones towards some better outcome. In the case of a, you know, utilitarian, I want to maximize pleasure net pain. And every decision is, is just a consideration of which step takes me closer to that goal. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, we have frameworks, which we could kind of describe as more rule-based. And these are that to do the right thing is the right thing in and of itself, not in reference to some other place that we're trying to get to, right? So famous philosophers in that kind of school would be Kant. So I mentioned the word rule-based. The jargony term for that would be deontological. And there are certain other frameworks that are relevant here. So for example, we'll be familiar in the kind of general context at the moment with libertarians. So people who basically say that 
freedom is uh, maximizing freedom is the most just way or the or the right way to treat people. Mm-hmm. So in essence, what you're saying to kind of paint it in broad strokes is there are schools of thought where you justify something morally on the basis of the outcomes it achieves. And there are schools of thought where morality exists in the actions themselves and outcomes are sort of irrespective. Exactly. And we just need to work out the specifics of like, what are the ends that we want to maximize and what are the rules that we want to form? Mm. And Um, that's where you get obviously a lot of variation and a lot of differences in opinion, but broadly, those are the kind of two categories. Yeah. So let's kind of think about this. We'll start with that kind of rule-based or Kantian perspective. As I said, please listen to previous episodes if you want to hear a bit more about Kant. I think it's fair to say that from from that sort of rule-based perspective, or, or particularly from Kant's perspective, a lockdown is justified if it's in keeping with what he describes as a categorical imperative. A categorical imperative we can basically just call like a universal rule. Think of it as like a rule that is that would make sense for everyone to follow, uh, both as in you would like everyone to follow it, and as in it would actually like work if everyone followed it. So uh, like, don't kill each other is a yeah. simple example. Yeah, I'm struggling to think of an example where like it may seem good, but not everyone could do it. Well, um, do do not lie is also another one that he he'd he'd insist is uh, that's a categorical imperative. Yeah. Uh, categorical yeah, yeah, imperative. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes there are occasions in life where you know yeah. a white lie is applicable. Um, so that was one thing. It can it can be a categorical imperative. But the other thing that was very important, particularly to Kant, was that we must simultaneously respect people as ends in themselves, not as means to something else, even if that something else is promoting public health, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is this is actually kind of a vein of thought that's that's very similar to libertarianism. It, it, it can seem it can seem so so easy to say, oh, you know, but the, the benefit to public health is so large. From their perspective, the whole moral framework is designed to be irrespective of defining what's good or how good it is. You should be respecting people as people in themselves who have the right to make choices. So that's kind of a Kantian, and in this context, it overlaps a lot, libertarian perspective. Promoting the categorical imperative is in essence promoting freedom, so long as it's in a form that's coherent for all to simultaneously have that. So we can clearly see that the freedom to violate other people's freedoms is a contradiction of terms in this perspective. So that can't be a categorical imperative. So that kind of covers like one perspective. We're basically saying in order for, for a Kantian or, or arguably a libertarian perspective for a lockdown to make sense, it should be a universal rule that makes sense, but it should also respect people as ends in themselves. Jake, what about a consequential perspective? Yeah, I think the consequentialist perspective is probably easier to relate to in the context of this question. And what essentially you're doing there is you're weighing up the costs and benefits of, of a policy such as lockdown. And it's easy to see that you're promoting a good such as public health in the context of lockdown. And what we're saying is that the good of that outcome supersedes the costs that go into producing it. So, you know, there's a lot of personal sacrifice that goes into a lockdown. People are sacrificing their personal freedoms, etc. We'll We'll go over the specific pros and cons in our arguments, but essentially that's that's what you're doing you're kind of you've got a moral calculus which is weighing up the costs and the benefits you try and bring them to like a common denominator like in terms of utility or something you could look at it in terms of financial cost it does raise some interesting questions the first one is how do you weigh the moral worth of things like somebody's life or or someone's livelihood it feels a little bit like comparing apples and oranges there so that's that's one Mm. issue that's morally very interesting the second Mm. While many consequentialist frameworks simply net up across the population, 
we may find that there are cases where, you know, the distribution of goods and, and harms actually matters. So government messaging has sort of implied that lockdown is good for everyone. It's in the interest of your own health to stay locked down. And if that's the case and everyone's benefiting from it, then it seems fine. But there's certainly an argument to be made that there is more harm and cost imposed on some segments of the population than others. So that's mm. another interesting issue. The third, of course, is the challenge of incomplete data. And a lot of the decisions around lockdown have been made in conditions of serious uncertainty. And that is mm. morally very challenging because ultimately, if you're trying to weigh yep. costs and benefits, you need the best data available. Yeah. And I guess it's interesting as well. Like lots of people say like, oh, follow, you know, quote unquote, follow the scientific advice. Even if there's a popular opinion within the scientific community, there doesn't seem to be, you know, true resounding consensus on every single point. So, for example, by many people's standards, the Swedes weren't following what was sound scientific advice. And by the Swedes' opinion, they were following the sound scientific advice of their own advisors, whilst not being too swayed by politics. You know, they were saying other people were being too political. So it's, it's by no means easy to do that. And then throw in the fact that, yeah, you know, data sets aren't complete. How do we extrapolate from those data sets? You know, how do we know it's fair? Everything's easier with hindsight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it, and what's, it the, what's the moral be. relevance of that? Yeah, so let's let's quickly get into the arguments. I, I don't think that there's much point in dilly-dallying, young Jacob. So the Kantian slash libertarian perspective, I don't really think there's much before or against here. I, I think there's basically one answer, and the answer is that we cannot coerce people to obey lockdown. That just doesn't respect their humanity uh, and their position as ends in themselves. But similarly individuals should identify their duty to help others uh, and, and choose to behave reasonably. This should just kind of be an emergent property. This certainly seems to form a consistent categorical imperative. Like you, you can definitely make a, a universal rule that people should behave in a way that is considerate of public health. I don't think that that's particularly challenging. Some will, will kind of make the point that, oh, the, the kind of benefit of that public good only exists if everyone complies. You know, we can kind of argue whether this is true or not, but the point is from a Kantian or libertarian perspective, that doesn't matter. You know, it, 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 the fact is from their perspective, or particularly from Kant's perspective, someone else being wrong does not justify you doing the wrong thing. The reason he calls something a categorical imperative is because it is, as the name says, categorical. It always applies. He has a famous example that we discussed in previous episodes where he was asked, oh, if an axe murderer came to your house and asked where your children were, could you lie to them? And he said, no, because lying is wrong. And the fact that they're an axe murderer who intends to do bad does not justify me in doing something bad. To kind of very, relate very that to this. Very, consistent. Yeah, it's, uh, it's consistent, even if it's weird. So to, to relate that to this, just because some people aren't going to listen to the rules and that may ruin the public good, that doesn't give the government the right to coerce people. So I think, I think the ideal Kantian outcome would be something along the lines of, of actually what, to some extent, did happen in countries like Sweden and the UK, particularly in regards to, I remember in the UK, in regards to hoarding, right? Um, yeah, there were weeks we, we, where supermarkets just like shelves were empty. People were panic yep. buying pasta, flour, toilet paper, especially that yeah. provoked a lot of fear, which was exactly. completely <laughs> irrelevant with hindsight. But yeah, and so what the government did was instead of any sort of coercion, instead of bans or imposing fines, they basically just every day in their briefings appealed to people, told them this isn't necessary, calm down, and it, it eventually stopped. And that I think would be kind of the Kantian approach: would be you can't coerce people but you can inform them and it is their duty to adhere. I think 
also before someone calls this out, I think strictly some shops impose limits, but I don't think that that was a government policy or even, you know, arguably, arguably if it was, you know, the point is they didn't come around and basically set huge fines and stuff and, and start chasing people down. There wasn't a kind of coercion. And that I think largely reflected the kind of general approach in the UK and some other countries. Whereas interestingly, countries with authoritarian histories like Spain, Italy, and Greece, uh, had much less cultural issue with not just imposing very strict rules, but basically using their police and military forces to uh, to properly enforce them. It's true. There were some quite scary scenes abroad of, you know, you, you see people get sort of rounded up and sent home and fined. You see some hilarious examples mm. of people creatively breaking the rules. There was a period in Spain where uh, if you had a pet, that gave you sort of license to take an extra walk because you needed to let your pet out the house. Walk so you pet. see videos of people yeah. walking like toy dogs. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, you know, people, people might say like, oh, selfish or whatever. It's obviously not in the public interest, but I really don't think that, again, we can, we can take lightly loss of, of private rights. These, you know, these are fundamental. It, it, it's what sets us apart, us being, you know, Western societies apart from, from uh, authoritarian societies. Mm-hmm. Just because it's something may benefit the government's ability to act. You know, there are some things that we should value above that. Uh, and again, I, I, I point you to the National Security Advisor example, where they would probably say that the government should have access to all our communications. Yeah, whereas for a lot of people, you know, that would be crossing a line and actually personal privacy yeah. is, is, is something they value more highly than the public mm. good of having that security access would, uh, would entail. Yeah. So what this seems yeah. to come back to um, is it seems to revolve around a question of consent and respecting people's individual freedom you use the word coercion yeah. a couple of times that seems to be the sort of crux of the libertarian issue exactly lockdown, right it's 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 not even it's not even saying that the outcome shouldn't be the same i.e we shouldn't ask people to stay home but it is saying that there's a very big difference between asking people and using the police and military to force people which is interesting and and that's i mean like we said at the beginning there's been a real spectrum of responses across different countries, the degree to which they have coerced yeah. or just appealed to reason. And I suppose, yeah, to sum that up, yeah. the sort of libertarian or Kantian perspective seems to be you want to respect people's rights to choose. You want to inform I them. Know. And, and, and yet some people make it so hard to respect that decision, like anti-maskers. All right. So that sums up the Kantian libertarian perspective. Let's look now at the issues in consequentialism. And I, I, I raised a few questions earlier. I mean, the real challenge is just how do you weigh up all the different costs and benefits? And it's something that people have been debating ever since lockdowns began. We recognized early on, there's going to be a lot of economic harm that's done in the process mm-hmm. of closing businesses. But how do you go about comparing something like losing your job to something like losing your life? Does that distribution, you know, if someone loses their job to save someone else's life, does that matter? I think because this this is where I think things get really interesting in the media and the media actually has a lot to answer for because it's very easy to be very emotive about the question of life and death and to say, you know what, life is sacrosanct. It's just not comparable. You can't compare saving one life to any amount of cost because it's so important. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, Andrew Cuomo, the New York State governor, I think, he said, if it saves just one life, I'll be happy. And to be honest, I think that we should call out for that what, that what that is, which is PR nonsense and virtue signaling. Either it's with good intent and he's in- incredibly naive, you just cannot effectively govern with that kind of mindset. Um, or he knows what it was and he was just saying something to sound empathetic. I agree. He's, he's basically saying, you know, we're going to put saving lives above everything else. But 
Yeah. It's, it's a ridiculous yeah. cost we've, benefit we've assessment before. to say. Yeah. Yeah. We've never before, like we had the option to invest more money to save lives before COVID was a thing. And we didn't choose to tank the economy 10% to save a single life. So clearly that's not consistent. Yeah, this is where the whole issue of COVID being quote unquote unprecedented becomes problematic because it seems to shift the values that we've, we've held before concerning human life. As you've just said, we have a decision all the time about how much we fund our healthcare systems. And there's calculations going on there in terms of marginal deaths, right? Deaths that could be delayed by more investment. And yes. Yeah, I mean, as, as a matter of fact, every single healthcare system in the world has some number of deaths that could be avoided, or maybe it's better to say delayed, given more funding. Uh, so, you know, given that, it's not very hard to work out a marginal cost of stopping at least one additional avoidable death in our healthcare systems. That could be seen as a good estimate of the marginal cost of, of a life. And I think basically the point is, whether it's setting speed limits, using data, whether it's how much we fund our healthcare systems, the fact is, we can't run from it. We have to implicitly set this value. And it becomes more pertinent in a time like this. I do, I do have an interesting example um, from my old ethics textbook. Um, uh, so mm. I think a lot of students in philosophy will be familiar with this. It was the case of, I want to say Ford. I might be wrong. I might have got the wrong brand there. <laughs> there was a car manufacturer. We're going to get a defamation. A defamation <laughs> yeah. So there was a car manufacturer at some point in the 80s or 90s or even possibly before then. Uh, and they had an issue with their engines. Basically, they were positioned in an awkward place at the back of the car such that if someone crashed into you from behind, there was a very high likelihood the engine would explode, more than likely killing the people in the car driving it, possibly the car that crashed into them too. It's, it's pretty bad. Um, but what makes this an interesting issue that's very relevant to the question at hand is that the car manufacturer did a quick calculation and they figured that Every time this happened, they'd have to make a certain amount of payout in terms of life insurance. And they traded that off directly financially against the cost of recalling all the vehicles and replacing them and realized that based on the probability of incidents that they'd seen already, it actually wasn't worth doing the recall. It was cheaper, made more financial sense to just let people continue to drive and deal with the occasional accidental explosion when it happened. Obviously, when that appeared in the press, they got hammered for it. I, I think it comes across as callous, but the fact is, like, you know, if you're running a huge company where there are non-negligible risks of death, such as if you're in the military or if you're doing something like contracting in a politically unstable area or working on an oil rig or in construction, these are, these are actual like calculations that actuaries basically have to work through. To, to, to make it a little bit meta, I think the whole dynamic changes once that breaks as a PR story. I think at that point, it does become worth making the, um, the, the, the trade-off and, and, and fixing the cars because at that point, the damage to reputation is another financial factor that they have to trade off. But I think certainly a Kantian wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't see that as uh, being moral out of any sense of duty. We've talked about this in previous episodes, but that's where it's interesting is that sometimes being too sort of coldly consequential about things and especially reducing things like lives to a financial number. People, people get, I guess, uncomfortable with that because right that makes, yeah, it makes sense statistically. But I suppose, you know, if you are among that statistic of people who die, then it's a whole hmm. different issue, isn't it? So we're talking about these lives uh, and we mentioned healthcare systems. I think one thing that's worth clarifying here is that healthcare systems actually have a system for measuring lives. They use something called quality adjusted life years. Uh, and I think that's of some moral import. 
let's explain why with a couple, a couple thought experiments. So let's take this classic example. You see two people drowning. One of them's a baby. One of them's a 90-year-old, right? Which one would you say? I think it's fair to say that the majority of people would probably say the baby, right? This is assuming that you know neither of them. You don't have like familial links to either. We covered yeah, a similar all, question all of, in our episode the, on racism, yeah. didn't we? Yes. All of the things equal baby or 90-year-old. That's all you know about them. I think most people pick the baby, right? I and think that, so too. Yeah. Seems, yeah, it seems to appeal to some sort of idea that the value of a life is some factor of how much is likely left to live. And now a kind of follow-up question, okay? You're, you work in a care home. There are two 90-year-olds you see, you, you know well. Uh, one of them is, you know, assume they have a similar life expectancy. One of them is suffering incredibly with cancer. And the other one is brightly, sprightly old dude. Can't keep them away from all the other, you know, all the, all the ladies in the care home. Oof, always causing trouble. Yeah, you could start a proper sitcom about his antics. Anyway, you see the two of them drowning, right? The one who, who's been living in extreme pain and the other one who's having a great time. Which one do you say? And I think, again, you, you, you lean towards the guy who's got more potential life left to live, don't you? The, the healthier guy, even though in that case, ah, it's not necessarily ah, so, a so I said, age, right? So I said in this one, they have a similar life expectancy. But, ah. but you're kind of touching on a, you're touching on a similar point. I think most people would choose the guy who was like living a good life. And it, it, it touches to this point that the value of the life is something to do with the quality that you can live as well. Yes. Hence the term quality adjusted, right? Yes. So quality adjusted life years are basically the expected number of years left with a factor between zero and one of how high quality they are, where like the quality would be zero if you were dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and the quality would be one if you were like completely able-bodied, could, you know, totally live a normal life. So we kind of look at the way that we were valuing marginal quality-adjusted life years in hospitals before. Basically, some moral philosophers looked at this and they, they came to a number of 25,000 pounds. Interesting. Where did that number come from? They looked at research that was and wasn't funded. And it was basically that if the research cost 30,000 pounds per quality-adjusted life year, it was rejected. If it was under 20,000, it was accepted. So they took the middle and said roughly 25 per quality adjusted life year. And now this highlights an issue that I personally have with the reporting around COVID. We see so much reporting around the number of deaths, but I really don't think that that gives it good perspective. So you, you've said that roughly, what was it? Nearly 700,000 people have died of COVID this year, right? Mm-hmm. Nearly 700,000. What, yeah, what we haven't said is that the average age is about 80 and that most deaths, in the case of Italy, over 95% of deaths had significant comorbidities, i.e. they were otherwise ill. Compare this with malaria. Malaria kills about half a million people a year, and the average age of death is 25. So if you take that into consideration, in terms of quality-adjusted life years, the annual cost of, uh, in you know, lives lost of, of malaria is arguably much greater. Interesting, interesting. And I, another relevant point, as you just said, is malaria... You know, that's been ongoing for a very, very long time. I suppose. Uh, but Jake, that's, it. That's, that's poor people who are far away. <laughs> well, I, what I was going to say was, I mean, this is, this is where you do get the risk that comes with, um, oh, there's a cognitive mm. bias. I, I, I want to say it's the availability bias, but I'm not sure. But because COVID is so prevalent and it's so in the public eye and it's, it's currently a, a very sort of infectious stage, people are sort of worried about the potential deaths. But as you say, there, you know, there's, mm. there's a significant sort of reference group that COVID affects, whereas malaria does seem to be wiping out otherwise young and healthy people. So in terms of quality of yes. life years affected per person, malaria seems more deadly. 
Yes, absolutely. But also, I think the interesting thing that you're saying about that was not just that we're biased by the one that's close to us geographically, we're also biased between this cause of death that's very understandable or this cause of pain that's very clear, understandable, emotive. And the thing that we're kind of going to discuss in weighing up is the deaths that are more ambiguous but are indirectly caused by factors like lockdown. Mm. Uh, so, for example, the more suicides. Yes, that affects some people but who are related to them, but it's not reported in the same way. We think about the deaths in the coming 10 years because of less funded healthcare systems, because of a huge recession. We're talking about, uh, on average, people who endure great stress or, or lose their job actually have a shorter life expectancy. So there's some loss in quality adjusted life years there. Yeah, they did a study um, on that after the 08 recession, didn't they? They did, they did. So the point is, there's some unintuitive counterbalancing that has to go on. But okay, so we have, we, we've done a lot of valuing of life here. Let's take this question to its full extreme now. Can we somehow compare this with joblessness? We have just said that we have a currency estimate for quality adjusted life years. We've just said that maybe we can um, put some sort of quality adjusted life years cost on joblessness. But ultimately, it, it's very hard to make a convincing argument that we have found the numbers to value these things. There's mm-hmm. always more factors to consider. And ultimately, how can you turn something like life satisfaction into numbers? And is, is currency even necessarily the right base? I mean, currency is an intuitive base because it's how we value most things yeah. in, 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 you know, in a, in a market economy anyway. Um, yeah. Capitalism. Woo. <laughs> listen to our episode on billionaires. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, then other philosophers, I, I want to say Peter Singer is an example has suggested that, you know, we should try and reduce everything to a base of well being. And then I'm, I'm not even mm. sure what sort of metric you use if you're assessing well being necessarily. How does a dead person report their happiness? Zero. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I think the overall point is that, Basically, this is an impossible task at any time that it's at the fringes, but we basically need to look for cases where the balance is obviously wrong. So for example, to go back to Andrew Cuomo, do I think 10 million unemployed to save one life is obviously wrong? Yes. So let's kind of walk through the the rest of the arguments, look at some of the data, and then we can see whether we kind of fall in that category or whether we're kind of in that gray area where Mm. it depends a bit on on your perspective on the value of life and stuff. Then the the other problem that we want to address for consequentialism is how we distribute positives of public health. So I think an interesting problem with this, this particular pandemic and these lockdowns is that contrary to government messaging, it does seem to be the case that empirically this harms some people, particularly young, healthy people, without actually conferring much benefit for them. When you this say that, a, you, mean, you mean the policy of lockdown, right? You mean the policy of lockdown yes, imposes yeah, yeah. costs without, yeah. Yeah. So this is actually like a classic issue with consequentialism. The idea that it seems to, to come out as right to justify severely punishing a few people to benefit a large group. Although intuitively, that might morally seem unacceptable. Like to say that we should have, you know, a small class of slaves to benefit the rest of society would be obviously wrong. I think most people would agree. It's the, it's the same reasoning that leads to like, you know, justifying cannibalism. You've got four people on a boat, you eat one of them and the other three survive. And what that obviously fails to acknowledge is the separateness of persons and the fact that when you're, when you're aggregating things, you, you miss exactly, as you said, the distribution. Yes. There's a wonderful thought experiment that we read recently. A guy called Stephen John proposed this, this really cool thought experiment. And he said, imagine this. You wake up uh, one day in hospital uh, and the nurse comes over to you and says, we've had to remove your kidney, but it was the only thing we could do to save your life. You'd probably be like, oh, just lost a kidney, but wow, I'm still alive. On that gain, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you didn't need my consent for that. Uh, yeah, most people would be like, fair play, you know, I'm still here, uh, I'll, I'll take it, I'll take the lost kidney. Now, 
same scenario. Imagine you wake up again, the nurse comes in and says, we had to remove your kidney. We're really sorry. But it was the only way to save that old guy's life over there. You'd be like, hang on a second. <laughs> and, and I think what that drives, you know, the analogy he was making in terms of lockdown was statistically, although COVID can, can infect anyone of any age, there are a lot of asymptomatic cases. The risk of serious harm or death to younger people statistically compared to older people is way out of balance. You know, it does genuinely seem much less risky to younger people, at least with the data that we have today when recording, that seems to be the case. Yeah. To the extent that if you're, if you're under the age of 50, even before conditioning that you're healthy, just on average, normal everyday accidents, you know, road accidents, accidental drowning, that kind of stuff poses a larger risk. And that thought experiment drives home the fact that, you know, in this scenario, when you're all being asked to lock down, the government messaging indicates it's a prudential policy. It's, in, it's for your own good. You're being locked down for your own safety. Which can be the case for some viruses. If it was Ebola, which has an extremely high mortality rate, irrespective of your age, then that's actually true. That's true. Yeah, if Ebola was raging, I think <laughs> no one would be too, too complained about the fact that they had to lock down. I, I read an example recently about the Spanish flu that said it had some really nasty visible symptoms like bleeding from your eyes or something i think if we lived in a world where people were walking around bleeding from their eyes instead of coughing people probably would feel mm. more I think, inclined I think, to lock themselves up and, and and wait it out i feel like that's this is really the crux of the argument if this pandemic was a a very very deadly one i think that there would basically be less discussion because as i said at the beginning there's no it's, it's not a morally interesting question if everyone obviously agrees that's right it's clearly in everyone's best interests to stay home and wait this out, then there's not that much that's ethically interesting. I think where it does get ethically interesting and what the thought experiment touches on is that it confers a much greater sacrifice on younger, healthier people who are losing their jobs, who are losing their freedoms, who are falling out of touch with friends and family and not being able to see people when there was actually relatively less risk to their own personal health. I think it's fair to say that if you're a young, healthy person, it's tantamount to a cold or flu. And that's where, again, I think the media has a lot to answer for because every sort of case of young people contracting and dying from COVID has been very well publicized. But it's it's a case that overplays the statistical risk that we seem to be seeing. Despite the fact that actually as a percentage of the population, the flu kills some young people. So so how can how can consequentialists deal with this? I think, again, as we mentioned in a previous episode, John Stuart Mill are kind of more modern proponent of utilitarianism introduced this this idea that certain heuristics are important or, or certain rules are important as a method to optimize in the midterm so he essentially you know finds a kind of sneaky way to shoehorn in the concepts of you know basic rights or, or higher goods into his conception of consequentialism he would basically say something along the lines of we shouldn't harm people in the name of public good because in the long term that undermines the norm of respecting certain basic rights which is important in long-term public good maximization, uh, ironically. So his argument is basically whether it's okay to take someone's kidney without their consent depends on you know, what exactly that metaphorical kidney is and your perspective on consequentialism. Are you more of a John Stuart Mill person or are you more of a classic Bentham, just pleasure, net pain, treat the group as a whole mm. kind of person? In any case, I think basically when you're a layman approaching this and you're, you basically want to balance a few different frameworks it, it's basically two strands of consequentialism you want to consider i don't think it's ever you know in layman terms acceptable to have a gross misbalance so, so from a consequentialist perspective to kind of sum that all up uh, we may say lockdown is justified if the lives it saves and other positive effects minus the cost it imposes is greater than if we'd simply done nothing in the words of peter singer 
if the, the cure was not worse than the disease. And then as a further point, I'd actually point out, it must just not be you know, better than the disease. It must be better than any other reasonable option that was available, including softer policy touches, as we've seen in some, some states like Sweden. And then finally, we can add that caveat that whilst we may not strictly say it must benefit everyone per se, we don't want the positive benefits to be at significant costs to some. Indeed, indeed. What we did in the last episode was we basically took a side each. Uh, so today, I'm happy to take the side of lockdown is justified. And then and that leaves you justifying, sorry, justifying that lockdown is not justified. It leaves it you to argue that the costs outweigh the benefits, essentially. Okay, go ahead, Jake. All right. I think the most easy and obvious ethical point to make is that lockdown is justified because human life is sacrosanct. It's Cuomo's point, but less extreme. The point is that saving lives, it is just a really difficult thing to compare. I mean, we, we talked about the sort of qualities and everything already, and you're kind of forced to conclude that it's, it's really difficult to provide a fair, measurable scale that weighs life against yeah. other things, which is not to say I, I that- get you. It's not to say that the economic harm is not worth factoring in. It's just that if you're a person who's, you know, you know, friends and family who have died from this, or, or indeed you're going to be one of those people who loses your life, it's, it's just, you know, you can't weigh that against other factors very easily. And because it's an emotive thing and because the risk of the pandemic spreading, I guess I'm actually slightly making a different point here, the, the fear risk that the pandemic costs to society at large is, is so great that if we don't take every precautious step that we can to, to try and mitigate it, you know, that's, that's going to be terrible for the world as well, consequentially. So wait, is that, is, is that second point? So the first point is that human life is sacrosanct and we shouldn't be doing kind of specific cost benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. And I, I can kind of see that. I can see how like, okay, it might like implicitly appear in some places like, like the funding of healthcare, but it's not that we're saying we should fund healthcare until we reach X number. It's just a number that kind of pops out implicitly. And mm. it's the reason why people are so disgusted when they see stuff like that, that for example you gave where they set a specific number and said, eh, it's cheaper to just pay it. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. So that's the first point. And the second point is that models suggested that the pandemic could cost millions of lives. So taking... So there's inc- incomplete data at the time it made sense. It, like there was a much bigger potential. Risk. Yeah. Which hindsight may prove to be correct or incorrect. But yeah. because of the proposed risk, it seemed like a proportionate response potentially. To be fair, I, I, it, it's hard to argue with a kind of a soft version of that sacrosanct argument. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it shouldn't be subject to specific cost benefit analysis. Is the implication that like there, there should be some number I could be able to pay people to kill them? Like I get that you can't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't take that to the extreme that it becomes a market for death, right? Mm. But at the same time, you also can't have the ridiculous extreme where we just say that human life is invaluable and start to behave in a way that's inconsistent with how we were behaving before. I think particularly in the, in the circumstance that if we're talking about saving lives, we all have the option of saving lives in Africa by making just small donations. It just doesn't seem morally consistent to say that we're going to shut down our entire economy, even if it saves one life, when actually, you know, we could definitely be topping up our aid budgets, for example. Um, on that second point, fair, fair enough, better to be risk averse. But, you know, I think let's, let's discuss more from this point onwards where we have the data that's available in August 2020, not, hmm. at, the, not at the beginning not the beginning of the lockdown i think in fairness in retrospect locking down at that time you know the original however long lockdown fair now you know i haven't made this point yet but now that you know there's evidence we're looking through it and we've actually not been able to identify a statistical link between lockdown
lockdowns and death rates. Now it's a whole different perspective because the, the data has changed. I, I, I still, I mean, I'm slightly stepping out of my arguing lockdown role here. I, I just, I think the media has a lot to answer for and just like emotive statistics that have an agenda. Mm -hmm. It was so clear all along that the best thing we could do globally or, or, or as sort of societies was just arm ourselves with the best available data. Mm -hmm. It seemed like, you know, emotions ran. Uh, yeah, obviously it was a scary time. Emotions ran high, but I think that was always... Yeah. The World Health Organization sort of had that mantra, didn't they? I think that was yeah. one thing, to be fair to them, that they did get right. I think this is a good, in the middle of our argument, just signpost with, some, with, our, with policy. I would venture to say my personal perspective, as it stands with the data that currently exists, is that it doesn't seem that lockdowns are effective in actually saving lives. They're effective in reducing infections, but the infection is harmless to the majority of people. So actually, the majority of the benefit could be found in more targeted policies around care homes, hospitals, and vulnerable populations, and simple non-invasive policies like requiring more widespread use of masks, for example. So basically, my argument is that we can achieve as many good results without incurring those huge economic costs. You know, in, in a lot of countries, I think the average is that 50% of deaths, something like that, are in care homes. You know, whether your cafe is, is open or not is kind of irrespective of how good your care home isolation policy is. Yeah. And I suppose you can always, you know, you can always mandate social distancing or, or strongly encourage social yeah. distancing without, yeah. you know, strictly requiring locking down. That's yes. true. Yes. One other reason, uh, and that was actually very clear in, in the government messaging, at least in the UK, was a major argument for lockdown was to protect health services. Yep. There's, there's almost an irony to the fact that, you know, the health services are there to protect us. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. But the, the messaging was basically we have to protect the health service. What we don't want is health services that are overwhelmed and then people who require them for other non-COVID related needs can't get the help they need. People who require them for COVID mm -hmm. can't get the help they need because they're overwhelmed. That was, again, a potential disaster scenario that happily okay. with hindsight it seems to have avoided okay but this thing works both ways because that's an example of a policy that actually also directly led to deaths in two ways one hospitals were preparing for a surge that actually early data had the ability to suggest wasn't coming if they had looked at for example cruise ships and similar had got it they would have got a much better sense of potential death rates instead we looked at china's data who's going to believe china's data like, not like they have a political agenda to lie about how many cases or deaths they had, right? <laughs> According to the Chinese model, it was something like 20% of hospitalization uh, of cases were hospitalized. That's also before considering that, you know, aside from to what extent they might fiddle their numbers, we now know, so again, maybe this is unfair to say to retrospective decisions, except for the case that they should have been looking at the cruise ships. Uh, we now know with hindsight that actually there are tons of asymptomatic cases so I think antibody testing in New York suggested that hospitalization rates fell from 20% of confirmed cases to about 1.5% of the actual overall number of cases they think they had, which means that we would have been actually better able to cope and didn't need to make policy decisions like sending old people from hospital to care homes to make space, ironically then causing loads of people to die in care homes. Yeah, I mean, that was that was one of the major tragedies of the whole thing. I don't know that it even was unique to the UK. In Canada, 90% of deaths are in care homes. In the US, in some states, it's like 70%. Yeah, ba basically, how many deaths you had is more closely linked to your care home policy than to how strictly you locked down. It's a very striking fact. I'll make another argument just quickly. So far, yes, the data that you're presenting bears out the fact that it has much more of an impact on the elderly. I don't disagree with the fact that better care home policy would clearly have been a good strategy. 
All I would say is that when it comes to locking down, yes, one, there's the sort of prudential concern of protecting yourself. But there's also the fact that people care about the health of others and, and they, they care yeah. about the health of their relatives and, and sort of vulnerable yes, people yeah, they're yeah. connected to. And again, like having a functioning NHS, you know, people that's true. have these somewhat that's altruistic concerns. And that's another factor that matters. That's something that enables someone young and healthy like us to at least feel less victimized by, by being locked down because we're like, you know, it's a sacrifice, but at least these are yeah, the I'm public goods that I value. I'm helping duty. people, right? I take, I take that. that. That's actually a very fair point. And that's, that's why earlier I mentioned in the case of, of that kidney example we gave, the kidney example is quite stark. What your metaphorical kidney is, is very important to the question. So if the metaphorical kidney is not being able to go out with your friends for a few months, that feels much more reasonable, even if it's, you know, without your consent. I will, I will concede that point to you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I have, I have, I, <laughs> I, I have one. So economic loss, obviously. Yeah. Um, this is, this is on two points. Economic loss in the sense that these are also valid pains that we should be considering. You know, loss in welfare due to people losing their jobs, mental and social health declines, etc. That's not just economic. But then also, taking it back to that quality-adjusted life years that we can work out financially, an economist named Paul Fritter suggested that the economic impact of a lockdown, due to the like, recession that it causes, in the long term would actually result in as many or more net loss of quality of just life years due to people dying because of underfunding of the healthcare service to come, due to um, that kind of effect of joblessness we're talking about, et cetera, those kind of knock-on effects. And I think another Bristol study found that a recession the size of the 08 recession would have a similar effect in terms of deaths. Don't quote me on that, but take the overarching principle that actually unintuitively, the knock-on effects of lockdown also causes a decrease in quality-adjusted life years, which could even drag the net amount into the negative. I think it's been easy to see in the media for a long time, there was this portrayal that health is like health supersedes economics. People make it out as if it's the stock market that, that matters and the stock market's been doing fairly well. But I, you know, I mean, this is, this is a pertinent point to us. Anna and I run Stasher, it's a startup, check it out. Um, it's a travel business. Um, you're, now, was, now you're going to make us sound biased. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, it was doing, it was doing. Isn't Jake are bitter because their business is not doing well. <laughs> it was doing great. It's obviously been really badly affected and, you know, we'll be okay. We're young. We've got some funding. We, we, we've got the patience to turn things around, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not been, you know, it's not been the best experience. Very different if we ran it's like been... a video conferencing software. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also, I mean, like kind of not personally and non-trivially, the, the risks to people's jobs, the risk to our own jobs, to say that because you are saving lives, to say that then your fear of losing your job is irrelevant is actually also very, very hurtful to people. I think so. And I mean, one of the things that Stasha gives us some perspective on is we work with small businesses around the world and we've been in regular contact with a lot of them. And, and we've seen, you know, a non-trivial number have just gone bankrupt. They've closed down. They're not able to sustain businesses that they've poured a lot of their lives into. And that's yeah. That's and these are people we personally know who are, who are pretty personally devastated to lose the businesses that they poured their savings into. Making. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tragedy that has not just effects on like their financial well-being, their salaries and stuff, but mental health, mm. stress. There's, there's a lot I that goes that's, into that. That's the important thing. I think when we talk about like the economy declining, it's like you say, too many people think that means people are worrying about money. It doesn't mean worrying about money. It means worrying about livelihood. That feeds into things like your identity, your, there's a lot more to it. And for self-worth like, for sure. Yeah, do I, do exactly. I feel like a less successful person right now? A hundred percent. Luckily, we've got I didn't this podcast. realize this was going to be, yeah, luckily we've got this <laughs> podcast. I didn't realize this was going to be my outpouring. 
Um, okay. <laughs> but no, we're, we're not saying so, this from any sense of bias. It, it, it's important to clarify. But your argument is that economic loss... Or rather, or no, to be fair, to be fair, we acknowledge the bias that it brings. But yeah, I don't sure. think that that invalidates the point. Yeah, yeah. The only counter I can come up with to your point about economic loss, when I was thinking about this earlier, and I, I don't think it's a particularly strong one, but it's just, it goes back to that incomplete data at the start of the pandemic when people were looking at scenarios of, okay, potentially half a million to a million people in the UK are going to lose their lives if we let people carry on about their business mm. without intervening and people are just dropping dead <laughs> and they're not yep. able to come to work because they've contracted COVID and they're in hospital, that would yeah, be yeah, yeah. pretty that devastating is, for fair. the economy and for a climate of fear. And that I think so, so was... you're... Your point, your point is essentially that it is weakened by the fact that we should be looking at the opportunity cost. It's not fair to say that the entirety of the recession is blamed on lockdowns. As example of Sweden or someone like that shows, even if you'd taken reasonable approaches, people still would have been pretty scared. They still would have reduced their economic activity. True, because ultimately just the pandemic itself is going to inhibit people's movement and inhibited movement is yep. inevitably going to reduce yep. economic activity. And like we say, like I was saying that, you know, the alternative of more targeted policies could have had a similar or, or if you'd done them well, better effect. But that does require probably severe isolation of vulnerable populations. That's a non-negligible number of people. And particularly old people have a lot of money and they spend a lot of it, especially traveling and going on stuff like cruises. I have one last point to make, um, but this is, this is somewhat tangential, uh, which is just there have been some unintended positive consequences of lockdown that, that have been acknowledged. I think mm, two and major I, ones. And I think to answer, to answer your question before you even say it, it's unintended, so it's irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting moral question. I mean, can, can, an under, can an unintended positive consequence count towards your decision making? The two I was just going to highlight were lockdown had a fantastic impact on the environment. You saw videos all around the world of like nature returning to previously uninhabited areas, pollution levels drastically falling. The other thing was lockdown was a watershed moment for things like working from home. It it potentially triggered a bit of a transition in the way that we live and conduct our lives. I'm thankful for that coincidence, but morally, I think it's irrelevant. So for example, say a crazy murderer is chasing me around my garden with a chainsaw due to his heavy duty boots and swinging the chainsaw around imagine that he actually managed to get rid of some branches that were hazardous uh, and and kill the weeds in my garden is that something that should even factor into our consideration of whether he's doing the right thing you're saying he's done some convenient gardening for you (laughs) (laughs) yeah he accidentally accidentally did some gardening for me I mean, perhaps, perhaps it's not fair because the gardening is just too trivial in scale. I mean, I wouldn't but, you say know, you, I wouldn't say you someone, owe him. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but take my point that, you know, if someone is trying to do something terrible and unintentionally does some good in the way, we don't, from a moral perspective, I think generally consider the worth of that, do we? Is, is that true even in a sort of strictly like consequentialist framework? Because I, I, I agree from a Kantian point of view, it's about your intentions and the actions themselves. But if I, I think so. I think so. Because I, I think it's I think it's about, okay, in fairness, I think it's about expected outcomes. So if it was unexpected, then it's morally irrelevant. If it was expected, then, uh, then I guess maybe it does matter. So if he thought ahead of time, oh, that means I'm going to do some gardening for him, but it gets, um, I get to kill him, then I guess maybe it's <laughs> I, I take your point. And, and to be fair, this is why I said they're, they're tangential points. They're side benefits. They, they were positive consequences of a lockdown. But I think you're right. When, when the decision mm. to make a lockdown was made, it was very much done in the interest of public health. That is an interesting mm. point because I, I think a lot of countries have said, you know, we're going to be guided by the science on this, which is tantamount to saying public health is the only value that we're considering here. And even where acknowledgement was made of economic consequences and other things, 
you know, yeah, it did seem which like I think, implicitly I think they were valuing public health above all else. Which is absurd because public health is intentionally one-dimensional. The job of our political process is to take factors such as public health, but also economic health, freedoms and rights, etc., and find a policy position that has an acceptable balance between them all. As I said earlier with the example of a national security advisor, they may say that national security means that we should give the government access to everything. But we have to balance that against our individual rights, against what's good for companies, etc. And we may find, as we often do, that the policy position is no, the government shouldn't be able to see all of our dick pics and stuff. <laughs> uh, and I'm glad you mentioned freedom because I think we've, we've done a... I thought you were about to say dick pics. Sorry? <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were about to say dick pics. <laughs> Why would I say that? What, did I just mishear what you said? I mentioned it. You oh, did mishear. Carry on. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. That was not what I was going to say. I was saying, I'm glad you mentioned freedom, uh, just because I think we've done a pretty thorough job there of balancing out the consequentialist pros and cons, the costs and benefits. Mm. Before we say sort of how we fall on that, it is worth, uh, again, touching the Kantian libertarian perspective. Yeah. So as we kind of mentioned earlier, it's, it's pretty much never acceptable for the government to coerce you. It's okay for the government to ask you to do stuff. Right. And that might sound incredibly unreasonable, but that's not far off what we've seen some countries do. We gave the example of certain policies in the UK, not all. And basically the whole quote unquote lockdown in Sweden, um, the whole policy was basically that they didn't enforce much. but They recommended certain things like they recommended people to work home as much as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, they recommended people to adhere to social distancing. There was some use of coercion, but the point is, by and large, certainly the things that people would find most restricting. So you know, no shops and businesses to go to, not allowed to leave your house, that kind of stuff. That wasn't done by force. And actually, there are whole national examples of that working. So that's a whole huge point. I mean, we've basically spent the whole time going back and forth on that one moral framework. A whole other moral framework just says no. <laughs> and, and I mean, to give it that sort of nuance you just gave it, if you appeal to people's reasons and duties, but you don't coerce them, then you could justify a lockdown in the sense that you've recommended it and people abide it. That outcome is, I think, a justified one under a yeah. deontological yeah. whatever perspective. But if you're going to deprive yeah. people of their freedom and coerce them, then I think and I, it's hard to argue. I think I know that there's the unintended uh, externality of potentially spreading the disease. But I think one thing that's interesting is also that this kind of gives people a lot of personal responsibility, right? So irrespective of how likely you are to catch it out and about, you have a lot of control over whether you isolate yourself or not. So it does give people that option to make decisions for themselves because this is not a statistical point or even necessarily a moral point. But I know many people with older relatives where the older relative has said, ah, oh, just come over. Like, I might only have a year left. I don't, <laughs> I don't want, <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. I know, I know people. Who, yeah, I agree. You know, I've seen, I've like, seen like people behaving this way. Yeah, my grandmother is crazy. I'm trying to avoid her, but she keeps saying, oh, look, just come over. If I'm going to go, I want to see my family. And that's like, you know, even if you think that's a crazy position, some people would argue that they have the right to make that decision and, and to behave in that way. Yeah, and to restrict that freedom. If, if someone is old, and it, it reminds me of that old lady in Chernobyl. I don't know if you've seen the show, but uh, she's like, I lived through two world wars. I'm not going to let a nuclear explosion <laughs> make me leave my house. Mm. Yes, I've I do. I've my cows here that. every day for the last 70 Although years. Actually, or, I mean, another example, as you kind of drove my mind, Fukushima. After Fukushima, you know, you, you could say, you could say by coercion, no one is allowed to go in and, and do positive work in Fukushima. But I remember there were cases of old people there saying, look, we're going to die soon anyway, and we want to do good. So it's our choice to go and clean up Fukushima. Which is, which is seems kind of morally really noble, right? That, that is very noble. That's a bit different because that's about sacrificing themselves for common good rather than simply making a decision about taking risks for their own life. 
but yeah, I think it, it kind of, you basically just reminded me because of Chernobyl and it, it feels vaguely relevant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Where do we come down on it? Or, or rather, we don't have to have the same opinion, Jake. Where do you come down on it? It's a really tricky one. I've got to disagree with you there, mate. <laughs> it's, it's a tricky one because for me, I think, I think it comes back to the issue of data. I think the one thing that gives me a lot of sympathy with the policies that we've implemented is that based on the available data at the time, based on political pressure from the countries that were infected early and did enforce lockdowns. And I mean, China kind of set the bar there, right? Because that was authoritarian and they went first and they were like, okay, this is how we controlled it and got this data, which is questionable. It is is also, it's also the gold standard of pandemic response, right? Like it is the go-to policy. If in doubt, just stop everyone interacting with each other. And, and that's the thing I think that gives me, looking back, it gives me, gives me sympathy with the policies in terms of justifying it based on the data available at the time. I, I have a lot of sympathy as well, though, with the, the whole libertarian framework. And I think it's a big thing to restrict people's freedom like this. So for me personally, I ooh, sort of sit in ooh, the middle ooh, where ooh, I think... Ooh. Speaking of, sorry, a whole point I missed go on, on restricting go on. people's freedom. The risk of encroachment. So the risk that the policies that are enacted now aren't rolled back. Yeah, uh, which I think is something people are, it's not unreasonable to be a bit concerned about that. People talk about 1984, whenever stuff like this happens, whenever governments seem to be imposing more and more authority uh, yeah. on their citizens. Oh, we, we, need to, we need to track where you're all going. It's for your own good. Freedom is slavery. Mm, no, I, me. I am free. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that, that was actually train spotting, but whatever. Yeah. So, sorry, to, to bring it back to the summary. I think for me, the optimal policy response does sit somewhere in the middle. I think the yeah. criticism I'd levy against government responses was just not making more effort to get more data. And I mean, I know they made a big public show of like doing more testing, but that was clearly what they should have been doing much earlier on and, and, and doing much more of it. And I think, I'm, I'm, I think they're still not at a level where they're completely mm. satisfied. And that's, that's months later. Clearly, cool. that was the way they should have been basing decisions. And I, I don't mm. totally agree. I mean, this is the sort of theme of this whole podcast, right? I don't, I don't think it was necessarily correct to put public health on a pedestal above other values and, and not make some consideration to the economic cost of lockdown as well so yeah. the effects I, i'm sitting somewhere in the middle storage businesses for example yeah i know how inconsiderate <laughs> <laughs> no i so i i i actually god we have to find something we disagree on i kind of share your position i think i kind of basically come down and i'm saying like i can't really guilt what we did in the past like given the context given the potential risks you know maybe if we'd looked harder or thought a bit more carefully we could have been smarter but it's better to be safe than sorry in that kind of situation what I can make comment on is the current policies, which, for example, the UK setting a 14-day quarantine on Spain, just like a snap decision, totally unnecessary and basically single-handedly causing Hayes travel agents to go bust or, or mm. basically put like a thousand jobs under. When Spain, even with their, their outbreak, is still doing better than the UK. And I think, yeah, basically overall, unintuitive. I think people focus too much on infection. We should focus more on deaths and hospitalizations. And the evidence is, those basically only happen when the infections reach vulnerable populations. And so far, the evidence seems to suggest that lockdowns aren't even that good a way of stopping it from reaching vulnerable populations. So more targeted policy responses should be our aim moving forward, as opposed yeah. to just forcing cafes to close for some reason. I'm glad you mentioned hospitalizations, because 
for me, this was something I was thinking about the other day. The original policy was very much aimed at preventing the healthcare systems being overburdened. And hospitalizations is clearly the main way to measure that. And sure, cases are relevant for tracking the spread of the disease. And obviously, that's what epidemiologists need to look at. But ultimately, the impact on society isn't just measured in terms of cases. It's, it's deaths and hospitalizations. Those are the subsets of people who are actually affected by the disease. And it does seem to be now, I mean, we've spent a lot of the podcast looking back retrospectively at lockdown when it was imposed in the past, which is, which is fair. But you're right to mention Spain. And looking forward, we should be thinking, is lockdown the right way to do it? And they've, they've said that that will be their policy to do local lockdowns going forward. Does that really make sense? Is that a little bit extreme? I really think they should be focusing more on hospitalizations. That'll give us a much better sense in the data of how harmful COVID is. And then we can get back to giving more freedom and more liberty to people who just are less affected by the disease. And like you've said all along, we've got to work on our policy about care homes, hospitals and vulnerable people. Yeah, it would be better to just address our care home policy, address our hospital isolation policies, um, address our vulnerable population policies. And then finally, think about easy, non-invasive policies like mandating more mask wearing if you're going to design this policy it kind of reminds me a little bit of the way that we make product decisions in stash and and the way that all startups do it is is you look for the stuff that has the highest impact and clearly if you're worried about public health those are the areas where impact is actually going to be highest to lock down an entire city because a number of young and healthy people test positive even though they have no reaction just seems madness to me obviously as young people move around the disease is still present there are going to be more positive tests But if there's no negative impact on them, if they're not being hospitalized, if it's not leading to more deaths, then I sort of fail to see why that really matters. On balance, yes, I have a lot of sympathy for the policies when they were enacted in the past. Looking ahead, no, I think a lockdown again would be excessive, at least in in, in this country. Sure, there are going to be places where the healthcare systems are way less well established than the UK's NHS, for example. And it probably will be the right policy move there. But speaking from where we are and with the data that we now have available, we've got to be thinking there's better ways to tackle this. So basically stop saying you're listening to the science and actually start listening to the science (laughs) and start to properly balance that, the public health uh, objectives with the economic and moral freedom. Uh, I think that's a good place to call it a day, Jacob. I'd say it probably is. I don't think we have any specific plans for what the next episode will be enough to say a title. No, I was, I was thinking about transgender people in sport. Oh yeah. Yeah. You have, we, we have talked about that a bit, actually. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's a difficult one. Here's Something an interesting question. Some reading on. Go on. Yeah. Should Caitlyn Jenner's records be converted into women's records? Well, what do you think listeners? <laughs> <laughs> Consider that ahead of, ahead of, Maybe that's a stupid question, but I thought it was just an interesting one. And then we'll think about some perspectives on how people justify trans athletes in sports and see whether that's consistent with not or or doing so. Cool. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. It'll be interesting to unpick the the question that sort of lies underneath that, for sure. Okay. Jacob, it's been good talking. Nice, man. It's been a pleasure. Chat soon. I'll see see you soon. Bye, mate. Bye.